Welcome back to another episode of Fine Answers. I'm your host, Matt, and today on the podcast, we have a few familiar faces. We have George and Mike joining us. Today, we are going to continue our discussion about the psychology of money. This will be part three in our four-part series. Mike, how are we going to start off today's discussion? I guess, you know, just talking about some of the things that are, are interesting in the book, I, we've talked about it before. I think it's it's probably one of the best finance books I've read, and a lot of that just is, it's very concise and, and has a lot of really good points about just psychology and how, how our brains try to sabotage us as, as investors. And, you know, the, some of the things we're going to talk about today kind of go to that. And, you know, one of them, I think, is something we talk about a lot with clients, which is the the right answer in a financial plan is not always the right answer strictly by the numbers, right? Is that financial planning is as much about psychology and about behavior as it is about strictly dollars and cents. And, you know, Two people could have the exact same set of circumstances and we or some other advisor might give them different answers based on their personality, right? And a lot of times the answer that's strictly the right one from a from a financial mathematical standpoint may not be the right answer if it's something that you aren't going to be able to live with and something you're not going to be able to sleep at night with. And, you know, one of the things he talks about in the book is just the ability to kind of stay in the game and not do anything that's going to you know, cause you to want to panic and sell everything, for example, right? So the right portfolio for you might not be the one with the highest possible rate of return, because that also means it's got the probably the highest volatility and the highest risk that there's going to be a, a big downside to it at some point. And if that means you're going to panic and sell, well, then that's not the right portfolio for you. Right. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the ideas here kind of focus on instead of maximizing earning potential, the goal of financial planning really is to minimize future regret, right? And, and to your other point, part of that is staying in the game longer. And he, Housel, Morgan Housel, who, who wrote the book, as we mentioned in previous episodes, he basically outlined, you know, by staying in the game, you, you, you increase your odds of not having that regret. And he said, you know, on, on a day-by-day -day basis in the market, you basically have a 50-50 chance of winning. If you stay in the market for a year, you have a 68% chance. If you stay in it for 10 years, you have an 88% chance. And, you know, historically over 20 year periods, you have a 100% chance of winning at the end of it. So, yeah, to your points, you know, staying in the market is kind of the key to all of this and not panicking all the time about every up and down throughout the game. One of my favorite quotes, actually, that kind of sums up what you guys are talking about is you're not a spreadsheet. You're a person, a screwed up emotional person. And it's just like, no matter what the spreadsheet says, how are your emo how are you going to react to like, whether the market dips or, you know, takes off and you're making all kinds of money, you know, what, what, what emotionally, how are you going to react to the, the actual what's happening when it happens? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like a lot of things, right? I mean, it, it, there's, there's been plenty of times where clients look at, you know, a, a potential portfolio and they say, oh, I, you know, if the market goes down 30%, I'll be fine with that. And then when it actually does go down 30%, it feels a heck of a lot different, right? Because the emotions that come along with that are totally different than the emotions when you're just analytically looking at it as a hypothetical and right. you don't really expect the fear that comes along with those times. And the hardest thing in the world to do is just ride that out and not not panic and not kind of change your investment strategy. Yeah. I mean, to, to George's point and to that quote, it's like, as humans, we are, we're nervous. We get nervous about everything. We are greedy. 
and we are also <laughs> paranoid. So in those three things culminated together, you know, make us terrible investors, right? It's very hard to separate the dollars and cents and the, in George's point, the spreadsheet part of it from what our emotions are in doing that is almost sort of the key key to being a successful investor, but it's, it's nearly impossible to do. Well, and, and like you say, it's on, it's a kind of on both sides, right? Because on one side, you, you want to make sure that you're in a portfolio that you can live with during the downtimes, right? That you're not going to panic and want to sell everything, but you also have to be in a, a portfolio that gives you enough of the upside that you're not going to, you know, want to try to chase the return when the market's doing well, right? Because one of the things we always look at from a financial planning standpoint is our goal is not to get the highest rate of return. Our goal is to get our clients through life without running out of money. And in a lot of circumstances, if we look at their, their current portfolio and then do a, a what if projection with a, a slightly more risky portfolio, sure, there's a chance they may end up with more money at the end, but it also increases the risk that they run out of money prematurely, right? Mm -hmm. Because for every great outcome, there's an equally bad outcome. So counterintuitively, the, the portfolio with a higher rate of return may actually reduce their odds of, of success in the financial plan. And then our job is kind of to interpret that for clients and explain to them why that is and why being a little more conservative is actually better for them long-term, even though it might mean that they don't have the, the potential of that higher rate or the higher dollar amount. Right. And it kind of highlights the importance of, again, going back to the diversified portfolio, having places you could take from when the market's down, you know, having appropriate cash reserves and cash in the bank and all of that put together. You know, it's people think of people think of the market as purely equities. Right. And when the market's up, you know, oh, my account's going to be up by that much. Or when the market's down, my account's going to be down by that much. But by virtue of diversifying and by virtue of having appropriate cash in the account, you're able to kind of smooth those ebbs and flows out a bit. Absolutely. And one of the mistakes a lot of people make is for, for some reason, we're kind of programmed to compare our portfolios to like the stock market, the S&P 500, let's say, and be upset if you underperform or, or be happy when you outperform. And it's really the wrong approach, right? Because anytime you have a properly diversified portfolio, you're supposed to underperform in the good times because you're supposed to do better in the bad times. That's the whole idea of diversification. Right. So, you know, kind of having this, you know, making it like a race between you and the stock market. It's like, well, if that's what you want to do, just buy the stock market. Yeah. You'll, you'll never be behind and you'll never be ahead, you know? Right. Um, but that's not, that's not the right approach for probably 90% of people who, who are looking to retire, right? It's having a diversified portfolio over a long period of time. To piggyback off diversification, you know, it's important to diversify because there's these outlier events that move the needle the most in which nobody really sees coming. No, it's absolutely true. I think, you know, we were programmed to kind of look at the past and then project that into the future as though these things happen repeatedly. But if you look back, the things that we worry about happening again have only ever happened once, right? Like everybody looks at it and says, oh, the, you know, what if 2008 happens again, the financial crisis, like all these things. Well, it, it was kind of a one-off perfect storm of, of financial issues that caused it, right? Or, you know, the Great Depression happened. It only happened once. We kind of hopefully have, have learned how it happened and how to prevent it again. You know, in, in the book, he talks about the idea of September 11th, right? And he said, for example, September 11th prompted the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates 
which helped drive the housing bubble, which led to the financial crisis, which led to a poor jobs market, which led to millions of students seeking college education, which led to $1.6 trillion in student loans with a 10% default rate. So it's, it's kind of one of these chaos theory, butterfly flaps its wings kind of idea where one event can dramatically influence something that happens 10, 12 years down the road. And only in hindsight can you tie those things together. Like yeah. When they're happening, you don't know that they're, that they're happening. But it's hard, right? Because all we have is history. So it's right. all we have to cling on to. It's all we have to kind of predict future events. But what Housel is basically suggesting is that for the most part, we should throw history completely out the window, right? Because it, 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 things change over time. And actually, this is, uh, I didn't intend to do this, but it's a fairly good segue into the next point I wanted to make is, you know, the, things in the environment and in the, the economy change, but also we change as people and as investors. So in the idea of financial planning, it's a living document and it evolves over time. We have clients or potential clients, I should say, call up and say, oh, I just want a financial plan done. And they kind of want it as like a one-off transaction. And and we shy away from that and say, well, you know, we could do that, but you're going to walk out of the office with the packet of information in three days from now, it's going to be completely null and void because either your goals changed, your ambitions changed, your career changed, your portfolio change. It's just all of these things that are constantly changing the, basically the trajectory of your plan. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you say, I mean, I think, I, I don't know of a single client we have that has the exact same financial plan that we started with, right? Every single time they come in, something is different. An assumption is different. The rate of return was different. Their goals are different. So it's, you know, people have this idea and I, I don't have the specific quote in front of me, but you know, the idea is basically, we completely understand that we're totally different people than we were 20 years ago, but yet we have this idea that 20 years from now we'll be the exact same person, you know, and, and that's clearly not true, right? Is every day we live life, something influences how we think, how we live, how we, what we believe. And, you know, we're not going to do the things we think we're going to do in the way we think we're going to do them. It's just kind of how life works. So you have to be flexible and understand that change is not a bad thing. Yeah. The reason you need to, to take all of these, you know, lifestyle and, and goal changes into consideration in your financial plan is because it all really affects you financially. And like one, one example that kind of comes to mind is maybe people in their early thirties, you know, it's a married couple and they say, yeah, I, I don't think we want to have kids. So, okay, we build that into the plan. But then a couple of years goes by and then they say, well, yeah, we want to have some kids. Having kids is a huge impact financially to you and your spouse in, in kind of the trajectory of your plan. So, I mean, I have two, it is, he's right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Mike can vouch for that. Um, but I mean, just, it's just things like that in, in it's okay to change, like Mike said, but you just have to constantly measure the impacts of those changes and, and prepare for what those changes will do to your future financial self, essentially. Absolutely. And, and like you say, I mean, everything changes, even the rules of the game, right? So going back to kind of what we were talking about before is we look at the past and try to project it into the future. And, you know, people will look at like the crash of 1929 and say, well, you know, the stock market could go down that much. It's like, well, yeah, because it happened one time. It, it's, an, it's possible. But if you think of all the things that have changed since 1929, not even just in the world, but our economy is, is entirely different. I mean, it, it, we are not the industrial economy that we used to be. So one of the reasons some people think that recessions have gotten a little fewer and further between is because production and industry is a little more susceptible to boom and bust than a service economy is that we have now. 
but again, it's it's and, and he talks about in the book. He says you know the the four hundred one k is forty two years old. The Roth IRA was created in the nineteen nineties. Venture capital hasn't existed for more than twenty five years. I mean, there's so many different innovations in finance that have happened in the past twenty to thirty years. You know, mutual funds only came about in I think the seventies. You know, so. Right. Just the structure of the market and the, the number of people involved. I mean, in 29, there was a handful of people, not necessarily a handful, but a very small number of people that were involved in, in, in stocks and bonds and those kinds of things back then. I mean, it's now so much bigger and there's so many more people involved that it's just an entirely different animal. So you can't necessarily look at things that happened that long ago and say, well, because it happened then, it could happen now. Yeah, that's a good point, Mike. And another topic that Housel discusses in the book that I wanted to bring up today was the idea of avoiding the extremes in financial planning and sort of avoiding the barbell approach. And by that, I mean, you know, you talk to people in their 20s and depending on who you talk to, there's sort of two schools of thought. The first group of people live this lavish lifestyle and, you know, they, they're driving expensive cars and, you know, have a very expensive apartments and they're buying Gucci handbags and, you know, in their kind of thought behind it is, well, I'm only going to live my, in my twenties once I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to have fun with my friends, et cetera. And that's well and good. But then you have that other group of people that sort of live in their twenties, this austere lifestyle. And they basically, you know, save every single cent they have. They never go out to eat. They always bring their lunch to work And their, their kind of mindset is, well, my twenties are going to suck. But when I hit, you know, my 40s and 50s and 60s, I'm going to be able to use that money that I was so diligently saving and live a great lifestyle then. So I think, you know, the key is to kind of avoid both of those approaches and settle somewhere in the middle. You got to balance the financial impact with your sort of mental and emotional impact too, right? And by taking either of those approaches, you're leaving one in the dust. So I mean, personally, and I could be wrong, but it seems like meeting in the middle is the best approach because there's nothing that says you can't, you know, be tragically killed in your 30s and all that money you were saving, you're never going to be able to use it. And you just lived a miserable life the whole time. And then there's nothing to say that, you know, uh, by... It lived to be 150. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And then you won't have any money because you blew it all in your 20s. So I don't know. But Well, I think the other piece to it is just you have to kind of train yourself psychologically to live there, right? Because, you know, if, if like you say, if you spend your whole formative year, formative financial years in one of those extremes, it's really hard to get out of that, right? Right? Because if, if you spend every money, every penny you make, because you look at it and you say, well, I got plenty of time to save, guess what? You're probably never going to get around to saving, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're training yourself to spend every penny you make and you're never going to save any. And if you're kind of depriving yourself of everything in order to save every single penny, you might be able to retire when you want to, but you'll never enjoy it because even once you retire, and we see this all the time with, with clients, right? Is people retire with all this money, they're going to be fine. You know, they're, they're, statistically, there's very little chance that they'll run out of money, but they can't bring themselves to spend any, right? You know, because they never learned how, and they don't they don't know what they want because they never were in a mindset to just spend money on things they wanted that were frivolous, you know? Right. Um, so it's it's kind of psychological as much as it is financial. Yeah. And we, I mean, with clients, we try to help them balance that too. I remember I was in a meeting with Joe a couple months ago and it was one of those clients that you're talking about where it's obvious that they're going to have tons of money, you know, when they both, when they both die. So we were encouraging them to spend more money. 
and it kind of sounds funny coming from a financial planner, but we also try to take into consider the psychological factor too. You know, these people lived a very reserved lifestyle and that's fine. They like it, but they were going on a trip soon. And Joe just kind of casually mentioned, oh, are you flying there? And they said, yes. And he said, are you flying in coach? And they said, yes. And Joe goes, well, why don't you just upgrade to first class? And they, they like sat there and they're like, they're like, oh, we can't do that. Like you have plenty of money for it. Just go ahead and do it. Um, well, so, one of the things, Joe, go ahead. Anyway. No, 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 go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because one of the things Joe, Joe always says is, if you don't fly first class, you know that the person that inherits that money is probably going to fly first class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they didn't spend their whole life saving it and, and working for it and all those things. So it's kind of found money to them. Right. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just when kind of money lands in your lap, you're, you're, your tendency is more to spend it on fr frivolous things than yeah. if you worked hard for it. So, you know, at the end of the day, that's what it's there for. You saved it to enjoy it. Right. And it, I haven't read the book, but I know a few people in the office have, you know, the whole idea of dying with zero. It's like, it's almost impossible to plan out because obviously you don't know when you're going to die, but you, beyond the inheritance that you want to leave behind, you should have everything spent down the day you die because you should enjoy it. You work for the money and you should also enjoy the money. Um, and I think, you know, we as advisors should definitely do a better job of, of pushing that too, because it's, it's so important. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things that he mentions in the book is, is going back to the idea of, of some people that just spend every penny. And, and one of the arguments they have is, well, I don't really, there's really nothing I'm saving for. Right. And well, I have plenty of time to save for retirement. I'm not looking to buy a house. So I really have nothing to save for. And one of the most important things to remember is there's nothing wrong with saving for saving's sake, right? Is going mm -hmm. back to what we talked about before, you have no idea what's going to happen, right? Life is unpredictable. The things that are going to impact you the most are going to come out of nowhere. It's not going to be something that's happened to you before. You know, there's nothing wrong with kind of just, if you have extra income, save it, right? Something will happen in your life where you're going to be happy that you had that saved. So just kind of something to think about if, if, if you're one of those people, Right. You don't necessarily need a reason to save. Right. And saving is the only variable that you have full control over. Yeah, you can't control the rate of return. You can't control, to some extent, you can't control your spending. I mean, you can to, to past a certain point, but, you know, some things happen that, you know, medical expenses, stuff that you just can't control, but you can always control how much you save. Uh, yeah, that's a common theme throughout the book and, and I think a good place to wrap up. And, you know, what we have to remember is investing has a price, but it's not a dollars and cents price. It's the price of it is fear and volatility and risk. And in order to, to win with investing, you have to be willing to pay that price. And as, as much as it hurts, that's the only way to do it. Because if you just sit on the sidelines, yeah, you won't have to pay that price, but you're going to look around you and say, wow, I, <laughs> I wish I did because... Everybody else is, is way ahead of me. But I, I think we'll wrap up there today just to stick to that 20-minute mark that we usually aim for. And we will do one more part on our four-part series, releasing it at some point in the near future. So look forward to that. Thanks. Financers is produced and edited by Sachetta and Callahan, LLC. All disclosures are posted to our website at sachetta.com forward slash financers. S-A-C-H-E-T-T-A dot com forward slash F-I-N-E-A-N-S-W-E-R-S. Thanks for listening.